Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy whose friends decided that the plural of my last name is Matthiases because it rhymes with diocese and that just feels right. It really does just feel right. <laughs> I mean, there's no arguing against it. I don't know how often you're going to use Matthiases, but you're all welcome to. <laughs> I mean, we have met your family. That's true. I imagine that if we put you and your siblings and even your parents together, you are collectively the Matthiases. I mean, we're the Matthiases, but you can keep believing that. <laughs> I'm going to keep calling you Matthiases. I think it's great. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> cool. Okay, Brian. Given the social media week that has happened, I don't think we can start this episode without talking about that tweet from the Pope. Because I got tagged in it, you got tagged in it, and in the honored tradition of, I don't understand this thing on the internet, can you explain to me this thing on the internet? I think I need you to explain to me that tweet about Mary that the Pope tweeted. What was the actual quote again? I'm pulling it up right now. Also, if you don't follow the Pope on Twitter, follow the Pope on Twitter, because it's weird and fantastic and there's no reason not to. To be honest, I don't follow the Pope on Twitter. You don't follow the Pope on Twitter? No. <laughs> I have followed the Pope on Twitter since before we had this show. Uh, I do Just because it amused me that he had a Twitter. I do follow an account that is Jesus Christ on Twitter. Okay, well that's quality. <laughs> it's at Pontifex is the, his Twitter, if you are curious. And they have it in a bunch of different languages as well. So, Okay, here's the tweet. With her yes, Mary became the most influential woman in history. Without social networks, she became the first, quote, influencer, colon, the, quote, influencer, end quote, of God. Hashtag Panama 2019. Okay, so I think Panama 2019 is probably World Youth Day. Okay, but then what is the yes that he's talking about? Uh, when she agreed to be Jesus's mom. Okay. There's just so little context given in this tweet. It's like, she consented to something, and yes, consent is important, but I feel like I need more information. I feel like most people following the Pope on Twitter uh, are familiar enough with Mary's story that, like, that's decent enough context. Okay, fair. (laughs) But they call her an influencer. There's a lot happening here. Yeah, it's someone trying really hard to reach young people. Clearly. (laughs) And it's not, like, actually Pope Francis doing this. I'm sure. It's his social media manager. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's some young priest whose job it is to tweet for the Pope. I mean, young is relative. He's probably a little too old to have this job, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Fair. Okay. Well, enough religion in social media. What are we talking about this week? So this week, we're talking about the lectionary. We'll start from the very beginning. Please do. Okay, so in church, we read parts of the Bible. Correct. (laughs) Generally speaking, in most Catholic churches and mainline Protestant churches and some evangelical churches, you'll read four Bible passages. You'll have an Old Testament passage, and then you'll have a psalm, and then you'll have an epistle, so like one of Paul's letters or somebody else's letter, or sometimes the Acts of the Apostles during certain times of the year. And then the fourth one would be a gospel reading. Okay, so on any given day, there's four readings in a service. Right, on Sundays. On Sundays, yes. On the big ones. Yes. So this is different for 
Orthodox Christians and some evangelicals. Orthodox, they just do epistle and gospel reading. It's just a different thing than we're talking about for most of today. I'll come back to them a little bit at the end. In a lot of evangelical churches, it's just kind of whatever the pastor wants to read. Okay. Those are the cases we're not talking about. All right. But when you're in these churches that follow this pattern, especially if you're within the same denomination, you're going to hear the same readings, no matter which individual church you're in. Yeah, because I figured it's sort of like aligned with the time of year so that you're doing the like Jesus has risen stuff at Easter and the Jesus was born stuff at Christmas and everything else in between in whatever times are seasonally appropriate. Yes, exactly. Great. You're describing the liturgical calendar. Great. <laughs> now, is the calendar divided by like, this is when you read whatever, whatever, like this is when you read Mark and this is the time of year you read Luke and whatever and what have you? Like, kind are of. all of the epistles... Marked out, like, for are there 52 readings that count as, like, epistles or acts of the apostles, and you just, you know this is one and this is 52, and you figure out the in-between? Yes, in some lectionaries, not necessarily the ones that we use today. Okay. I think this is fascinating because I didn't know this was a thing, but I have a lot of questions, and I'm really excited for you to help me answer some of them. Yeah, this is a really cool topic, I think. So the reason that you hear these same readings is because of a lectionary, which is just the book that tells you which parts of the Bible to read. So there's a guidebook. Yeah. Does it come out every year or is it the same? It's the same. So it's not an almanac. No. Um, it repeats on a cycle. Okay. So some repeat on one-year cycles, some repeat on three-year cycles, there's at least one fringe one that repeats on a four-year cycle. Weird. I like that just without knowing anything, you've decided that four years is weird and three years is not. <laughs> I, and I immediately questioned why that felt weird to me the moment it came out of my mouth. But mostly because I feel like four years is a long time. Okay, we'll get back to why four years actually is kind of more reasonable than three. But <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was weird comparing three to four. I think that like a one-year cycle feels like complete. And a four-year cycle feels like a lot could change in four years. That's fair. And that is actually the most common complaint about that four-year cycle. Fair. So, how did this happen? All right. So, we'll get into the history. So, even before the time of Jesus, the Jewish community had standardized sections of the Torah that they were supposed to read on specific days. It makes sense that the idea of reading portions of scriptures was carried over into Christianity because it began as a movement within Judaism. Yes. Paul, at one point, specifically says in the first letter to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. We don't know exactly what they were reading, but Paul says you should be reading the Bible in... Out when... loud, to people, on a regular basis. Yes. Paul also mentions the Psalms in the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians. So we can assume that the communities he was writing to were familiar with the Psalms, at least. Now, are the Psalms in the Old Testament, so are they part of the Torah? Yes. Okay, so they are documents that were could have been familiar to the Jewish populations of the time, but also could have their own special significance to the new Christian populations at the time. Yes, because at this time, when Paul is writing his letters... The Gospels are not around yet. so Well, because they're still happening, right? Well, no, because Jesus... Oh, right. Paul never met Jesus. Again, up for debate, sort of. I'm, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Paul had 
a spiritual encounter with Jesus. Paul never met human Jesus. No. I, uh, yes. It feels like there's someone in some corner of theology who is mad about that, but I don't know who it is. <laughs> okay. All right. Paul never met Jesus in the way the people who wrote the Gospels met Jesus. Ooh, I don't know about that oh, one. Oh, God! <laughs> the, the people who wrote the Gospels were probably not eyewitnesses. They probably had it handed down to them. Okay, but the Gospels were written before Paul. No. Or... <laughs> Okay, I give up. <laughs> Gospels were written after Paul, <laughs> based on traditions handed down. So there's reasons why the Gospels didn't exist yet if Paul was still around, but I can't explain why that's true. I just know that's true because the timeline is very wonky. Yeah, I'm being mean to you. I think it's probably fair to say that Paul did not meet Jesus in the flesh. <laughs> but people who wrote the go- who ostensibly wrote the Gospels did. That's the point, right? The This is not an episode on the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're, we're moving on. Yeah, let's move on. We'll do an episode on the gospels and Brian will try and actually explain this to me sometime, but today is not that day. Instead of having this fight every time. <laughs> yep. So we know that they were probably reading the Psalms, is what we were saying before. Great, great. So at least one part of this already was happening. Yeah. And we also know that Paul mentions that different communities should swap letters that he wrote them. He mentions it in the letters, hey, give this to this other nearby community. All those pep talks he wrote. Yeah. We don't know whether Paul intended these to be read at liturgical gatherings or if he just thought that two nearby communities needed similar instructions. Fair. Both are probably equally likely. Yeah, unclear. By the time we get to the mid-2nd century, so this is after Paul, after the Gospels. Great. There are Gospels now? There are Gospels now. Great. Gospels are like the end of the 1st century. Okay. So we know that Christians are reading a mix of Jewish writings and apostolic writings at this point. Justin Martyr is a person that we have a quote from, early Christian theologian. He says, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president or presiding minister verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Great. So they do some reading and then a guy gives a sermon. Exactly. This is how I've been told that religious services work. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a special episode where I drag you to church. Oh my god, I figured it would happen (laughs) at some point. But anyway, there's still a wide variety of things that are being read in these early churches. It was usually up to individual communities. In some places, Clement of Rome's letters were read in addition to the books that we see in the Bible today. Okay. So in addition to like Paul's letters. Some churches in Spain and France would piece together small bits of a bunch of different readings and make them into one big reading. Interesting. Instead of just blocks of text. So more like pick a theme and here's a bunch of stuff from all over the place about a theme? Pretty much is my understanding of it. Cool. The number of readings was also not standard. It varied anywhere from two to four. The most common practice that was used in Spain, Gaul, and Milan was three readings, one Old Testament, two New Testament. And how long are these readings? A couple paragraphs. Okay, so they're short. They're They're not not like reading a whole chapter of a book. 
Right. Yeah, like, think like a page at most. Alright, that makes sense. Though, that's referring to now. I don't know about these historic readings. They might have been much longer. Okay. I don't have any evidence of that either way. Despite all the differences, one thing a lot of churches did have in common was the idea of picking a book of scripture and just reading it straight through. This practice is called Lectio Continua. Alright. It makes sense. Yeah, you yeah. pick one and because they're all sort of one account. So like start at the beginning and read through the book of it, that section of it. Yeah, it's so you're serializing each individual book. Yeah. Now, here's the thing that I thought for a long time. I guess I always just had the assumption that the Bible was sort of like one big story mm-hmm. that happened sort of like this is the beginning and this is the end. And not like here's like five different people's tellings that might or might overlap at any given moment. I was like, oh, great. So at the beginning of the year, you start at the beginning and you just, like, you do whatever chunk it is for that week, and then at the end of the year, you get to the end. But that's not how that works. No. So a more helpful way to think about the Bible is instead of thinking about it as a single book, think about it as a library between two covers. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, because the Old Testament would have been individual scrolls. They would have been separate books and not Mm. bound together. Yeah. Way back when. Yeah. That helps a little bit understand how it's not kind of a cohesive thing and it's all different genres, all different mm-hmm. authors, lots of different things. But do we, does each book of the Bible read more or less like its own concise story? Except for like Psalms and the letters from Paul and all those stuff, which are more piecemeal. Yeah. I mean, there's Proverbs is just a collection of Proverbs? sayings and yeah, words of advice. <laughs> so that one is not going to be as narrative. But yeah, there's different kinds Psalms are, like, each psalm is its own thing, and they're collected into a book. That makes sense. Easier to find them that way. I guess. (laughs) Or something. But yes, at this time, they were just start at the beginning of one book and just read through it. This idea makes sense if every Sunday is the same, but as we start to develop Christian holidays, you want to read specific passages at specific times of the year so it matches up. That makes sense. The first of these holidays was Easter. Makes sense, because we're focused on Jesus rising. That was what everybody was waiting for again. And in some places, this started as early as the end of the first century. Oh, wow. So they really started to figure out Easter was a thing early. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the big, that's the high point of all four Gospels, is they all include the the crucifixion and resurrection. So, cool. Easter. Easter. Then we start adding Pentecost which is, we talked about with the the fires over the heads and don't drink in the morning. Yes. (laughs) Uh, That's the one where they all spoke a bunch of different languages? Yeah. And then we get Lent, so leading up to Easter. We're Uh, slowly expanding the calendar on either side of Easter now. Exactly, because that's kind of the central focus of it. Mm -hmm. Not Christmas, no matter what anyone tells you. (laughs) See, and this is where we learn all of Brian's real feelings about Christmas. (laughs) We'll get excited holiday Brian at Easter time. Oh, man. Just you wait. I can't wait. It's going to be great. We're getting there. That's true. It's the end of January. It'll be February by the time this episode comes out. Yeah. But anyway, by the 4th century, we have writings from Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, and from Augustine, saying that the books of Job and Jonah were read during Lent in Milan and Constantinople, and Genesis was read during Lent in Africa. And Acts of the Apostles was read in all of these places during Easter. We've got these holidays that are around, and by the 4th century we've got evidence that there's specific readings that go with these specific holidays. 
Great. So we're building up. Slowly but surely, starting to associate specific parts of the Bible with specific times of year. Exactly. We continue adding holidays. We add Epiphany, Christmas, Advent. At this point, we have a solid chunk of the church year that's standardized, starting with Advent around the end of November and running all the way through Pentecost, which is sometime between late May and early June. Great. So pretty much just the late summer, early fall is not accounted for. Yep. And we don't add really any holidays there. It's just its own no. thing. It's just summer. Yeah. It's ordinary time is actually what it's called. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just ordinary. Non-holiday time. <laughs> Chill out for a little while. So with so much of the year blocked out for these specific festival readings, it doesn't make sense to try to keep reading the book straight through. Cool. So bishops moved to prescribed readings. These were sections that were cut out of the Bible, and they were called pericopes. Okay. Which in Greek means a cutting out. How handy. Very practical. <laughs> I love it. At first, these pericopes were just indicated by notes in the margins of the text. Like notes with dates or something? Yeah, probably. It would be like just on the side, like this is where you start week one, this is where you start week two. Fair. And just kind of written in ad hoc. Yeah. But you pass on your Bible with all of its notes to the next bishop. priest at your, or bishop in your area and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Do you want to do that too? And they make notes and pass it down along and whatever and so forth. Pretty much, yeah. Cool. And then as time goes on, we get more formal. We get uh, capitularies, which are lists of epistle and gospel readings. All right. Originally, it was two separate lists. Okay. And you would just have a date and the first line of the reading and then the last line of the reading. Because right. there weren't chapter numbers in Bibles yet. Okay. So it was just like, on this date, you should read from and he said to the end. Basically. And the gospel lists were called evangelaries, and the epistle lists were called epistolaries. These two lists have now become one list, theoretically? Depends who you ask. Oh, great. <laughs> the Western Church and Protestants, yes. The Orthodox Church actually keeps their lists separate. Okay. But one list does not account for every week in the year. It's the whole year. You've got different types of readings in the two different types of lists. Okay. That makes sense. So the way it would work is the reader would start reading at the assigned passage, and then the priest would be standing there and would hold up a hand and say, stop, when you hit the, the verse that he saw at the end of his list. Oh, great. So it's like <laughs> reading in school. I guess, yeah. <laughs> at some point, the teacher's going to be like, and we should stop and move on to the next thing. Pretty much, yeah. Great. Early church, man. Fun time. I'm sure. Making it up, figuring it out as you go. According to the writings of Gennadius, a 5th century Christian priest, Venerius, the bishop of Marseille, uh, set up the first lectionary determining the pericopes for specific feasts and seasons in the early 5th century. Great. Shortly after that comes Hyneron. Hyneron. I wrote down a pronunciation. I tried. He looked um, it up. He even told me I he did. looked it up. I even wrote it phonetically. We have it audio. <laughs> David, if you need to prove it, we can put it in the audio. This is an audio test. This is an audio test. Ryan, talk for me. I'm also testing. I'm looking over my notes. I actually uh, looked up how to pronounce things this week. Oh my god! I know. I can, cor I can correctly pronounce things in But religion. apparently you can't say the word correctly. I can't. Don't it's the Kums Haronimi. 
Okay, say it again. The Comes Hieronymi. Great. I figured it out. This was attributed to St. Jerome, and it was thought to be written around 471, though both of these facts are debated by scholars. This is the document that is the, thought to be the basis for the lectionary that was what end up being widely used in the West. Great. So this was the beginning. Yeah. And it comes is a book that contains the readings for the day along with some commentary. Oh, nice. So if you're looking for a little something to add to your sermon or whatever, there's a little, yeah, a little extra help. resource to help you out. Exactly. Or if you're studying on your own or whatever. Yeah. Though I doubt many people were studying on their own at this point. Okay. Um, I think it was mostly notes for the clergy. Fair. By the time we get to the 7th century, Charlemagne called for a revision to the current text that he had. This was to standardize worship practices in the Western Church, and his advisor Alquin did the revision and based it off of the Gregorian Sacramentary, which was the current standard in Rome and is attributed to Pope Gregory I. He also reduced the numbers of readings to two, it was three commonly. Great. And so now we're back to two. Yep. Uh, one epistle and one gospel. And he shortened the length of the passages that were read. Okay. So we're getting more concise in our readings. Right. Probably this was done because of declining literacy because of barbarian invasions. Great. Yay, Dark Ages. <laughs> Woohoo! What a weird place. <laughs> then around the 13th century, lists of whole selected readings became popular instead of just the beginning and end passage. Uh, these lists sometimes also included other prayers, though this would technically make them missals. Okay. So now that they're printing whole passages and prayers, it becomes a totally different object? Yeah, the, the whole reading is still a lectionary. Okay. If you add the prayers so that you have the whole service collected into one book, then it's a missal. So is the missal like the script for the service? Basically, yeah. Okay. And are these the first missiles then, or were there missiles before this? There might have been scattered missiles, because it was kind of people doing their own things. But missiles really became popular in monasteries in the 13th century. Alright, this is really early missiles still. Yeah. In 1474 was the first time that one of these missiles was called the Roman Missile, which is what Catholics use as their missile today. Oh, wow. So it's been around for a long time. Yeah, obviously it's been under many extensive edits, but this is kind of the beginning of that. The base text that all of that is based on. Yeah. It undergoes a change in 1570 after the Council of Trent. Pope Pius V standardizes the Roman Missal across everybody in the Western Church, and he requires its use. All right, so now we're really putting our foot down about making sure that services are uniform, readings are uniform, everybody's doing the same things at the same time, all that nonsense. Exactly. And really, this is important because we're circling the wagons because this is the same time that the Reformation is happening. So we got to make sure all of our stuff's tight. Right. But actually, Luther was pretty okay with using the lectionary. The only change he made was doing the readings in German instead of Latin and small tweaks. Okay. But for the most part, he thinks that doing these readings and what the readings are, are there's nothing wrong with that part. Right. He just wants them to be more accessible to people and not just be all Latin. Yeah. He did comment at one point, he was grumbling that there were too many passages that were selected that showed the value of works instead of the value of faith. 
That sounds like what I know about Luther. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty typical Luther. <laughs> but the document that he's in support of, this is a lectionary, not a missal. Because he doesn't want all of the extra prayers and all of that stuff that comes with it being a missal. It's the content of the readings that he's not taking issue with. Um, I don't know if Luther used the the missal or a translation of it at any point. I think he probably adapted some of the prayers. Yeah. But he definitely changes some of them. The lectionary itself, the just, just the readings, he pretty much keeps that entirely intact. Cool. Uh, the Anglicans, they also keep the lectionary. Uh, they made, again, minor changes. Calvinists, on the other hand, did not like it. They went back to just reading the Bible straight through. Ah, interesting. Did they not do holidays in the same way? I don't know. I don't know how Calvinists do holidays. I just know that they decided they didn't want the lectionary. Cool. And Good for them. Mixing it up. It seems to be around this point, the more radical people want to not have that editorial hand that comes with having selected readings. That makes sense. You want more Bible unedited. Yeah. This whole pretty much stays the same until the middle of the 20th century. Wow. Yeah, we just are, we're pretty content with our lectionaries all in whatever language, but they're all But eventually similar. they do get translated into native tongues, so it's not just all Latin all the time. Protestants are doing that, but Catholics don't do that until 1969. Wow. So the services were entirely in Latin until that point? Before Vatican II, everything was Latin everywhere in the church. But like, what if you didn't know Latin? I mean, you learned it, kind of. But I feel like you miss a lot. Are the sermons at least in your native language? I think so. Because that at least helps a little bit. I can't imagine the sermons would be in Latin, but I don't know because I've like, there are some Latin masses that still happen. I've never been a Latin mass person, so I've never really gone to them. Fair. But up until Vatican II, everything Latin everywhere. Wow. I just feel like you lose a lot. But I guess there was a whole period of time where nobody spoke the language anyway, and people were still following this religion, so... Yeah. Before people could read consistently. And it's... Most of the mass is the same every time, so you learn what it means. I guess my thought is... If the readings are in a language you don't understand, then how much of the readings are you absorbing and taking away those lessons? Fair enough. I agree with you. I don't like I don't like Latin mass. <laughs> yeah. I'm very much people should have a good understanding of their faith and shouldn't just be doing a language that they don't speak from memorization without comprehending it. Yeah. All right. So 1969, something changes. Yeah. The Catholic Church published the Ordo Lect. Tonum, I see this, I don't know Latin. Uh, Ordo Lectonum Missae, uh, as a result of Vatican II. This changed the lectionary from a one-year cycle to a three-year cycle, and it added back in the Old Testament readings. Great. So for a while, we were, was that mean we just only did two readings all the way up until 69? Uh, yeah. All right. So we had a third reading in the 60s. Yeah. And when do we get the fourth reading? Uh, same same time. Okay, so you get the third and the fourth readings back in. Yeah. In Vatican II land. Yeah, because the psalm is also uh, Old Testament. Right. I don't remember which books go in which testament. Fair enough. Some some of them I get lucky, but not really. But yeah, so usually the ones with names are New Testament, right? That's not a good rule. Great. <laughs> I don't know. Then I don't know anything. There's a lot of names. Genesis in the Old is Testament. in the Old Testament. There you go. I got that one. You got that one. 
That's all you need. Cool. <laughs> That's not all you need, but no. okay. We figured it out. <laughs> um, up to this point, we were doing a little bit of each gospel every year. Same thing repeated every year. Mm-hmm. Now we're breaking it out into three. And a lot of Protestants really liked this idea and got on board with the three-year lectionary. A group that included Lutherans, Baptists, Catholics, Mennonites, Anglicans, Methodists, Unitarian Universalists, and the United Church of Christ, among others, formed an ecumenical group called the Consultation on Common Texts, or CCT, to create a unified version that they could all agree on. Oh, cool. So this is a three-year lectionary cycle that all these different denominations are in support of. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, and in 1983, they published the Common Lectionary. Were you about to say something? Oh, I had a question, which is, over the course of that three-year whatever cycle, does the whole Bible get read? Or are you still picking and choosing? We're still picking and choosing. There's still some sections that are just left up to your own personal study if you want to read them, or you don't get full stories top to bottom because it's a lot of text? Pretty much. I'll go into a little bit more about the structure Sure. Uh, after we finish up the this little bit on the Protestant lectionary. Cool. Tell me more then. So I said in 1983, we get the common lectionary. Mm-hmm. This was revised in 1992 based on suggestions after it had been put into practice. And the new edition was very creatively called the revised common lectionary. How charming. The main difference was made during the part of the year that doesn't include festivals ordinary time. Yep. During this time, the common lectionary had Old Testament readings that pretty much were just books read in order because you don't have festivals to change it. Yep. Um, This was as opposed to the Catholic version that had Old Testaments that were thematically related to the Gospels that were being read during this time. Okay, so you're starting to tie stuff together. Yeah. Well, the Catholics did that first. Yeah. People were like, hey, why do the Catholics do it that way? Some of us want that. Some of us don't want that. So the revised edition offers both options. Cute. <laughs> I like how just ready to make everybody happy this document is. Yeah, it's so nice. And it's very widely used. That's great. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, this is actually the version that most mainline Protestants use today. All right, cool. Catholics use a slightly different lectionary that is based on the one from back in 69, but overwhelmingly it lines up. Cool. There's also some other lectionaries that get used different places. The Catholic and the Revised Common Lectionary are the most common. Other examples are the Year D Project. Which, is that the four-year? That's the four-year. Uh, there's the Narrative Lectionary, the One-Year Lectionary, and the African-American Lectionary. Interesting. Yeah, so a few notes on the structure of Catholic or Revised Common, whichever, because they're pretty much the same. Year A, you read Matthew's Gospel. B, you read Mark's gospel, plus a little bit of John sometimes because Mark is the shortest. Okay. And C, you read Luke. And John mostly gets read during Easter, but also sometimes during Advent, Christmas, and Lent. So in those big holiday times. Yeah. So this is what I was saying why four-year lectionary makes sense. Because there's four gospels. Exactly. Great. I guess if I had known that at the (laughs) beginning of this episode, I would have thought it was less weird. Yeah. But three works well enough. We all seem to like that. One of them floats. Yeah. John just kind of moves around. He's also different. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, the other three are called the Synoptic Gospels. They're all based on a common source. Yes, right. Um, And John is kind of over there doing his own thing. Yeah. I already explained how the Old Testament readings are chosen. Mm -hmm. The epistles are also read straight through. 
And are those also on a three-year cycle? They are. Okay. For traditions that have daily services, so other than Sunday, that's mostly Catholic and Anglican, Mm -hmm. the weekday readings are on a two-year cycle with some of each gospel read during each year. Okay. Quick note on the Orthodox lectionary. This is a one-year cycle. Okay. So if you think back, we used to have the one-year cycle. Yeah. And then we changed it. That's kind of how things go. Somewhere somebody else is still on whatever version didn't change. Right. And it's usually the Orthodox Church because they're Orthodox. Yeah. (laughs) They like it the way they are. Yeah. Does that mean that the services are pretty much the same? Like week one of year A and week one of year C are the same? So you breed more familiarity with what's going to get talked about in your services year after year the more you keep going to church? Yeah, I think so. I think that's probably the advantage of it is the, the readings that are read, you know better. Mm-hmm. And people change over the course of three years. Yeah. So maybe you're at a time in your life where you need a certain passage, and if it's not coming up for two more years, you're not going to get that. True. So, I mean, there's pros and cons to both a one-year and a three-year cycle. Yeah. Three-year cycle, you get more different readings. Yeah. That's cool. Where in the cycle are you in your church right now? We're in year... C. So yeah, we're reading Luke's gospel right now. Cool. And then the other thing about the the Orthodox lectionary I mentioned before was that they do the separate books for gospel and epistles. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot more that I could go into with them, but that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Sunday School for Heathens Orthodox Edition is its own parallel universe show that is not the show. (laughs) I I try to mention them. Yeah. <laughs> Doing my best. It's true. But you got to teach what you know. Exactly. And I am a mostly Western church person. A little bit of Byzantine. Yeah. Just for variety. Yeah. So finally, why does this matter? Great question, Brian. Why does this matter? <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating, but also why does it matter? A lot of Christians don't read the Bible beyond what they hear at church. Mm-hmm. So the lectionary ends up being very important because it has a huge impact on how people view the Bible. You can include or exclude passages with strong women or submissive women, passages that emphasize helping outsiders versus passages that shun people who break rules, passages that focus on faith or works. Even if you're trying your best to represent the Bible with an even hand, you're going to have some kind of influence on your people. Well, and that's sort of part of the point, right? Is to be able to influence the lives of the people who you are experiencing a common religion with. You're trying to teach them something. You're trying to make sure that they lead good lives. Yeah, I I think that can be true. I think some people who are opposed to it could say that you're focusing on your vision of what Christianity is instead of what God says in just the raw text. So instead of letting people come to their own conclusions based on God's word? Yeah, but I don't know. I think there is definitely value to the sense of unity that you get from being able to walk into a church in a bunch of different countries and be reading the same thing. That is cool. All right, so that is what I have on the lectionary. Awesome. Well, let's take a break and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint and she has to guess what they're the patron of. Let's see how it goes this week. (laughs) Who you got for me, Brian? This week we have St. Lucy of Syracuse. Okay. Not New York. 
Yeah, where is historical Syracuse anyway? Sicily. Great. Lucy was born in 283 in Sicily to a wealthy Greek Christian family. Her father died when she was very young. Her mother tried to arrange a marriage for her, but she had already vowed her life to Christ. So many of the female saint stories start just like this. Yeah, there's a pattern. (laughs) For three years, she kept the marriage on hold. Then one day, she went to pray at the tomb of St. Agatha. While there, she saw Agatha in a dream, and she told Lucy that her mother's hemorrhagic illness would be cured. This convinced Lucy's mother to give up on the marriage and donate the dowry to the poor on Lucy's request. Aww. The rejected groom was angered by this. Of course he was. So he told the governor of Sicily that Lucy was a Christian. Not a good thing. Oh yeah, no, no, you don't want that at this time. The governor attempted to force her into prostitution. But when the guards tried to take her away, they couldn't move her, even after hitching her to a team of oxen. Wow. The governor then ordered her to be killed. She was surrounded by bundles of wood that were set on fire. These went out without burning her, though. Quality. (laughs) She defiantly told the governor that he would be punished for his sins. In response, he had her eyes torn out. Then oh, she... I, was about, I was hoping you'd say in response, he got struck by lightning. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. There, I, don't, I couldn't find anything about what happened to him, just that she told him he would be punished. Okay, so she got her eyes pulled out. Then she was killed by being stabbed with a dagger. How anticlimactic, given all the other things that they right? killed her with. <laughs> what? <laughs> While she was being prepared for burial, it was discovered that her eyes had been restored. After her death, her body was moved several times, so confusion developed over where it actually was. It is believed that several pieces of her body can be found in Rome, Naples, Verona, Lisbon, Milan, Germany, France, and Sweden. I don't know. TBT to our relics episode. (laughs) But I guess most of her body ended up in one place, because in 1983, all but the head was stolen. But it was recovered on her feast day. How convenient. (laughs) So, Shannon, what is St. Lucy the patron of? Oh man, there's a couple of juicy options in there. Is she the patron saint of giving to the poor? Against poverty? Great. I'm counting that as a win. I think that's, yeah, that counts. Because, you know, they gave her dowry to the poor. Is she also the patron saint of, like, the blind or people without eyes or something? There you go, against blindness. (laughs) I figured that that was probably, like, the real one. Uh, both of them are in there. Great. Uh, so the full list is Lucy is the patron against blindness, against dysentery, against epidemics, against eye disease, against eye problems, against hemorrhages, against sore eyes, against sore throat, against throat infections, against fire, against poverty, against spiritual blindness, for blind people, martyrs, peasants, uh, penitent prostitutes, poor people, sick children, authors, cutlers, eyes, Farmers, glassblowers, glassmakers, glaziers, gondoliers, laborers, lamplighters, lawyers, maidservants, notaries, opticians, porters, printers, saddlers, sailors, salesmen, seamstresses, same glass workers, tailors, upholsterers, weavers, and writers. Amazing. It's quite a list. <laughs> Whew. Oh, man. Well, thank you for that, Brian. Also, thank you to Adam Griffin for our awesome theme music. Thank you to David Griffin 
for editing and also for creating our super cool logo. Got something weird to say about David this week? Oh, I was thinking of something and I totally forgot. <laughs> I mean, he's just generally weird. Yeah. <laughs> you can follow him on Twitter. I haven't shouted out his Twitter recently. It's charming and also full of linguistics. Um, that's all I got for this week. Amen? Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod.